You are listening to Fundamentals of Piano Practice, written by Chuang Zichang and read by Henrik Pantle. Preface, Part 2 Why are these practice methods so revolutionary? For detailed answers, you will have to read this book and try them out. In the following paragraphs, I will attempt to present a few overviews of how these miraculous results are achieved and to briefly explain why they work. Let me start by pointing out that I did not originate any of the basic ideas in this book. They were invented and reinvented umpteen times in the last 200 years by every successful pianist. The basic framework for the methods of this book was constructed using the teachings of Mademoiselle Yvonne Combe, the teacher of our two daughters who became accomplished pianists. Other parts of this book were assembled from the literature and my research using the Internet. My contributions are in gathering these ideas, organizing them into a structure and providing some understanding of why they work. This understanding is critical for the success of the method. Piano has often been taught like religion, faith, hope and charity. Faith that if you followed procedures suggested by a master teacher, you will succeed. Hope that practice, practice, practice will lead you to the rainbow and charity that your sacrifice and paying your dues will perform miracles. This book is different. An idea is not acceptable unless the student understands why it works and to adapt it to his or her specific needs. Finding the correct understanding is not easy because you can't just pluck an explanation out of thin air. It will be wrong and incorrect explanations are worse than none at all. You need enough expertise in that field of knowledge in order to arrive at a correct explanation. Providing a correct scientific explanation automatically filters out the wrong practice methods. This may explain why even experienced piano teachers, whose educations were narrowly concentrated in music, can have difficulty in providing the proper understanding and will frequently give wrong explanations for even correct practice methods. Giving an incorrect explanation for a correct method can do more harm than good because it not only confuses the student but also an intelligent student would conclude that the method should not work. This is another quick way for the teacher to lose all credibility. In this regard, my career and educational background in industrial problem solving, material science, optics, acoustics, physics, electronic chemistry and scientific reporting have been invaluable for producing this book. These diverse requirements might explain why nobody else was able to write this type of book. So, what are some of these magical ideas that are supposed to revolutionize piano teaching? Let's start with the fact that when you watch famous pianists perform, they may be playing incredibly difficult things, but they always make them look easy. How do they do that? Fact is, they are easy for them. Therefore, many of the learning tricks discussed here are methods for making difficult things easy. Not only easy, but often trivially simple. This is accomplished by practicing the two hands separately and by picking a short section to practice, sometimes down to only one or two notes. You can't make things any simpler than that. Accomplished pianists can also play incredibly fast. How do we practice to be able to play fast? 
simple, by using the chord attack. This is a way of moving all the fingers simultaneously so that for certain combinations of notes they can be played infinitely fast, even for novice players. We certainly don't need any speed faster than infinity. Although I coined the phrase parallel sets of this application, it is just a fancy word for chord. Here I use chord loosely to mean more than one note played simultaneously. However, chord was not as good a choice as parallel sets because I needed a name more descriptive of how fingers move the connotation is that the fingers move in parallel and among musicians chord has a more narrowly defined meaning. Of course it takes practice to be able to string fast parallel sets together to produce music but at least we now have a biophysically sound procedure for developing the necessary muscle and nerve configurations for playing fast. In this book I have elevated parallel set exercises to a very special level because they can be used both as a diagnostic tool to discover your technical weaknesses and as a way to solve those specific weaknesses. Parallel set exercises are not finger exercises in the sense of Hannon or Czerny. Instead, they are the single most powerful set of tools for repeat technique acquisition. In summary, the key to success of the methods here is the use of ingenious learning tricks that are needed to solve specific problems. Even with the methods described here, you may need to practice difficult passages hundreds of times and once in a while up to 10,000 times before you can play the most difficult passages with ease. Now if you were to practice a Beethoven sonata at say half speed, you are just learning it, it would take about an hour to play through. Therefore repeating it 10,000 times would take 30 years or half a lifetime if you had say one hour per day to practice and practice only this sonata seven days a week? Clearly, this is not the way to learn a sonata, although many students use practice methods not too different from it. This book describes method for identifying just the few tones that you need to practice and then playing them in a fraction of a second, for example by using parallel set exercises, so that you can repeat them 10,000 times in just a few weeks or even days for easier, easier material, practicing them for only about 10 minutes per day, 5 days per week. Of course, these arguments are greatly oversimplified, but when all the complex factors are included, the final conclusion remains basically the same. Good practice methods can make the difference between a lifetime of frustration and wonderful rewards within a few months. This book discusses many more efficiency principles such as practicing and memorizing at the same time. During practice you have to repeat many times and repetition is the best way to memorize. Therefore, it doesn't make sense not to memorize while practicing. In order to be able to memorize a large repertoire you need to practice memorizing all the time in exactly the same way that you need to practice every day in order to be technically proficient. Students who use the methods of this book memorize everything they learn, except for sightseeing material. This is why this book does not recommend exercises such as Hennen and Journey that are not meant to be memorized and performed. By the same token, the Chopin Etudes are recommended. 
Practicing something that wasn't meant to be performed is not only a waste of time, but also degrades any sense of music you originally had. Once you memorize, you are empowered to do many other things that most people would expect only from gifted musicians, such as playing the composition in your head away from the piano, or even writing the entire composition down from memory. If you can play every note in the composition from memory, there is no reason why you can't write them all down. Such abilities are not for show or bragging rights, but are essential for performing without flops or memory lapses and come almost as automatic byproducts of these methods, even for us ordinary folks with ordinary memory. Many students can play complete compositions, but can't write them down. Such students have only partially memorized the composition in a manner that is inadequate for performances. Many pianists are frustrated by their inability to memorize. What they don't know is that, when learning new pieces, you tend to forget previously memorized material. This means that trying to maintain a large repertoire while learning new pieces is not a fruitful endeavor. This knowledge, together with the arsenal of methods for progressively implementing permanent memory discussed in this book, goes a long way towards eliminating frustration and restoring confidence so that you can build up your repertoire. Since students who use inefficient practice methods must spend all their time learning new pieces, they can never develop a memorized repertoire and therefore encounter horrendous difficulties when they try to perform. They wonder why performing is such an impossible task while Mozart could just sit down and play. We will see that many so-called established fundamental techniques are actually We will see that many We will see that many so-called established fundamental techniques are actually diabolical myths that can cause untold misery to the pianist. These include the curled finger position, thumbbander method of playing scales, finger exercises, sitting high on the chair, no pain, no gain, slowly ramping up your speed, and liberal use of the metronome. We not only expose these myths by explaining why they are harmful, but also provide the correct alternatives, which are respectively flat finger positions, thumb over method, parallel sets, sitting lower on the chair, methods for completely avoiding fatigue, quick acceleration by understanding speed walls, and an identification of specific beneficial use of the metronome. Another example of helpful knowledge is the use of gravity. The weight of the arm is important not only as a reference force for uniform and even playing, gravity is always constant, but also for testing your level of relaxation. On a more fundamental level, I provide the explanation of why the piano was designed with gravity as a reference force. Relaxation is another example. When we perform difficult physical tasks, such as playing a challenging piano passage, our natural tendency is to tense up so that the entire body becomes one contracted mass of muscle. Trying to move the fingers independently and rapidly under such conditions It's like trying to run a sprint with rubber bands wrapped around both legs. If you can relax all unnecessary muscles and use only the required muscles for just those instants at which they are needed, you can move extremely fast, effortlessly, 
for long periods of time without fatigue. Another example is speed wars. What are speed wars? How many are there? What causes them and how to do avoid or eliminate them? Answers? They are the results of your attempts to do the impossible. You erect speed walls yourself. There are basically an infinite number of them and you avoid them by using the correct practice methods. One way of avoiding speed walls is not to build them in the first place by knowing their causes. Stress? Incorrect fingering or rhythm? Lack of technique? Practice too fast? Practicing hands together before you're ready? Etc. Another way is to come down in speed from infinite speed by using the parallel sets instead of increasing the speed gradually. If you can start at speeds above the speed wall, you will find that there is no speed wall when you come down in speed. Thank you for listening this time. Subscribe my feed at foppp.henrik-pantle.de slash rss